Nestled in the rolling hills of Yamhill, Oregon, on 100 acres in the fertile Willamette Valley, you'll find Christoph Farms. 20 acres are devoted to growing Pinot Noir grapes and cider apples. Three generations of Christophs are dedicated to the project, including world-famous journalist, author, and New York Times columnist, Nicholas Christoph, who grew up here when it was called just the farm. Hello and welcome to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. We're bringing you the show on the road this week from Christoph Farms in Yamhill, Oregon. It's the place where New York Times columnist Nicholas Christoph grew up. For those unfamiliar with Christoph and his work, here's a little bit about him. Nicholas Christoph is a two-time Pulitzer-winning journalist with deep roots in Oregon. An opinion columnist for the New York Times, his work often takes him to dangerous situations around the world, writing about global issues like human rights, poverty, health, and gender. He also covers stories closer to home. Before all that, Christoph grew up on a farm in Yamhill, Oregon. He's the son of a refugee. His father was born in what is now Ukraine. A Portland church sponsored his father's immigration in the 1950s. Christoph got his first journalism job as soon as he got a driver's license, covering agriculture for the News Register in McMinnville. After high school, he attended Harvard, then Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship to study law, a degree he's never formally used. He joined the New York Times in 1984. In 1990, Christoph reported from China as the Tiananmen Square protest became a massacre. He and his wife, Cheryl Wudun, won a Pulitzer Prize for their coverage, the first married couple to win a Pulitzer for journalism. Christoph's second Pulitzer came for his reporting of the genocide in Darfur. He's also co-authored five books with his wife. Their latest, Tightrope, puts the spotlight on Yamhill and rural America, told through the eyes of Christoph's former classmates. Even after nearly 40 years in journalism, Christoph isn't slowing down. You can read his columns twice a week in the New York Times. At Christoph's gracious invitation, we came to the farm to ask him about what he sees happening in Portland, but also about the lessons we can all learn from the place he grew up and went to school here in Yamhill. We begin with his life on the farm. It must be such a wonderful thing to be able to come home to your family farm. I remember um, in high school at commencement saying that wherever I go, whatever I do, a part of me will always remain here. And uh, it's absolutely true. It, it's a place that uh, is very near and dear to my heart. What's your and your family's ultimate dream for the farm? Well, we want to keep it in the family um, and our kids love it. So, you know, I hope that my grandchildren's grandchildren are, are fretting about the same irrigation problems that I am. Um, you know, I would love it if the larger community were also able to benefit from, you know, the glories of the area. I refer to it as God's country and, you know, it has been for us. It, it obviously hasn't been for a lot of other people in the community and in a lot of other parts of Oregon. Well, I know you have a special place in your heart for Yamhill and for Oregon, but you have witnessed over the years a lot of trauma and despair with people that you grew up with. And you talk about that in some of your columns in your book, Tightrope, about the kids that were on the number six school bus with you. What happened to a lot of those kids? Well, when we were on the bus, it was a, we were all so optimistic. Things had been going really, really well. And 
then jobs went away. Uh, people, especially men, self-medicated with uh, meth, which was coming through, then with other drugs. They got criminal records, which made them less employable, less marriageable. We were all really proud here of our rural values, of our social fabric. And Laurel, that just unraveled so quickly. Um, the, so at this point, uh, about a third of the kids on my bus are dead of uh, drugs, alcohol, or suicide. And you know, the kids who got on the bus right after me each morning were the five nap kids, uh, Farlin, who was my year, and uh, then his brother Zeeland, uh, sister Regina, brother Nathan, brother Keelan. Uh, Farlin lost his job, uh, self-medicated with drugs, died of uh, liver failure as a result. Um, Zeeland died in a house fire when he was passed out drunk. Nathan blew himself up cooking meth. Regina died of hepatitis from IV drug use. And baby Keelan uh, died just at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, after he lost his job, he died of an overdose in his mom's home. And so five kids who at one point seemed to epitomize all the hope in this area, all gone. And their mom is still alive and goes, walks up to visit their graves every day. It just breaks my heart. And, and that's not the only family that happened to. I know you talk about the Green family. And Keelan once said to you he felt like his family was cursed or that there was something wrong with his generation, your generation, my generation. What do you think really happened? I don't think that there was anything um, about my generation that involved less personal responsibility, less diligence, less intelligence, less aptitude than any previous generation. But, you know, here in Yamhill in the 1990s, uh, when and this community is overwhelmingly white. People sometimes look to African-American communities and their struggles, and there was a tendency to point fingers and say, uh, oh, people, uh, if there weren't so many deadbeat dads, if people made better choices, uh, if they showed more personal responsibility, things would be better. And then, meanwhile, there was a great sociologist who said, no, it's about lost jobs. And he was exactly right, because when jobs left Yam Hill, the same problems unfolded. And I think fundamentally it was about the loss of good work and that there's a commonality between what happened in Yamhill and in Kentucky and Maine and inner city Baltimore. Uh, this is a problem that is reflected in all kinds of demographics across America. You, know, you talk about in your book about the war on drugs, America's war on drugs, that America lost that war, and you compared the U.S. approach to the one in Portugal, where Portugal decriminalized all drugs in 2001, and Oregon just passed Measure 110 that decriminalizes drugs with this uh, addiction treatment component. Now in Portugal, when they decriminalized, they saw the number of overdoses plunge. Do you think that what Oregon did is going to make a difference? I think what Oregon did uh, was overdue and is really important, but what is crucial is going to be, is not the decriminalization side so much as the treatment side. And so Oregon has not been good so far in providing treatment. I think it ranks 47th out of 50 states in terms of access to treatment. And so what has to change is actually getting people into that treatment. And uh, if that can happen, right now in America, only 20% of people with addictions get treatment. It pays for itself. It's so much more effective to provide treatment and so much more compassionate. 
and you know it doesn't always work people have relapses it's hard but it's an infinitely better solution than locking people up some other statistics you cite in your book that a lot of people, a lot of us like to think of America as number one. And you say, well, we are when it comes to the economy and the military, but far from it in a lot of other areas. And you say, according to the Social Progress Index, America ranks number 40 in child mortality, 32 in internet access, 39 in access to clean drinking water, 50 in personal safety, 61 in high school enrollment. And overall, the Social Progress Index ranks the U.S. number 25 in well-being of its citizens behind all other members of the G7 countries. How can that be? What happened in this country? How can those numbers be? We stopped investing in Americans uh, in roughly 1970. We have about 50 years in which we underinvested in education and healthcare while other countries were, uh, were doing that. You know, in the United States, we, we pretty much invented mass high school attendance. Um, my high school in Yam Hill was built in 1935 under one of the FDR New Deal programs. Um, talk about a huge return, it's still there. Uh, and so in the 1960s, we were still number one in the world in high school graduation. Right now, um, so many countries have surpassed us. And if you don't graduate with a high school diploma in 2021, you are cooked. Um, there's this misperception in America, I think, that it's all about personal responsibility and bad choices. And look, there is no doubt that a lot of my friends who were dead made some bad choices involving drugs, involving all kinds of things. But we as a country made some really bad choices as well uh, about uh, not investing in their education, about, you know, in Oregon right now, you can still drop out before you're 18. You are not obliged to stay in high school until you're 18. I think that's a huge mistake. Um, kids do all kinds of dumb things, and dropping out is one of them. Um, so I think we, for 50 years, have underinvested in working-class Americans. I think that educated Americans have often been pretty snooty toward less educated Americans. I think that conservatives have often looked down on people who are struggling on the basis that you're not showing enough personal responsibility. And liberals have more recently been looking down on them by saying, ah, you voted for, for Trump. You're voting against your self-interest. Um, I just think all around we could use a little more compassion and empathy and support. So it's not just not a Republican problems the Republicans are to blame or the Democrats to blame. This has been going on for, for many administrations. It's an American problem. And, you know, I think that there's also just a misperception that the highest return investments are in the best students. And, you know, I benefited from so many scholarships and I'm glad that I had those scholarships. But the, the highest return investment would have been in the kids on my old school bus who were struggling. Um, two of them, it's hard to talk about, two of them ended up being imprisoned for raping young children. Uh, two of them committed brutal, violent uh, assaults. Uh, and uh, two of them um, cooked meth, brought meth to this area. Those six kids, five of whom are now dead, wreaked such devastation in this community they were wounded themselves and they inflicted enormous wounds on others. If there had been 
greater effort to help those six kids, to make sure they graduated from high school, that they learned some vocational skill, then they would have been better off, but all of us would have been better off as well. And I don't think that we as a country get that. You um, gave the commencement speech at Rice University last month, and in it you implored the graduates to bridge the empathy gap. What did you mean by that? <laughs> One way of thinking about the empathy gap in America is that wealthy Americans donate much, much less to charity as a percentage of incomes than poor Americans. And, you know, it's not because wealthy Americans are ungenerous. I think it's that they're sheltered from need. They don't see it. Whereas if you're poor in America today, every day you see people needier than yourself. And I think that also people who are well off, it becomes easier to point at somebody who's struggling and see that not just as an economic failing, but as a moral failing. And, to, and especially if there's a racial gap or an ethnic gap or an immigration status gap, some way to otherize somebody. Maybe it's a political gap, a, a Trump voter gap. And I think if there were a little more empathy, a little less willingness to point fingers and more to offer helping hands, we would, be, we would have much smarter policies in this country. The Biden administration has put forth an infrastructure plan, both for traditional infrastructure and for human infrastructure, the American Family Plan that would have free universal preschool, free community college, extended child tax credits, um, all kinds of things like that that a lot of the Republicans are pushing back on because they don't want to spend money on things that aren't traditional infrastructure, especially on top of the trillions of dollars already spent on the coronavirus relief packages. What are your thoughts about that? The highest return investment you can make in America today is not in Pinot Noir grapes. Uh, it's in America's troubled kids. And, you know, frankly, for a lot of my old classmates, it's too late. When somebody is in their 50s or 60s or even their 20s, it may be, it may be too late to help them. You need to help them when they're three or when they're 13. And I think Biden's plan would would do that um, with various early childhood interventions. You know, this area was revolutionized by government programs to help the disadvantaged. And, you know, in Oregon, we have this big, we, we, you know, we think, oh, the pioneer ethic, those brave pioneers, they came out here, they risked everything, and they did, and it was heroic. But why did the pioneers come out to Oregon? Because of a government program for the disadvantaged, the homestead. Act, which was obviously limited to white settlers, uh, and it took land from the Indians and so on, but it, cre it, it helped build the white middle class. It was a program for the disadvantaged. Around here, rural electrification completely, hugely boosted productivity. Um, and then the GI Bill of Rights. Again, so many families around here, they, built their, they got their first home and some education through the GI Bill of Rights. And so... You know, this area has prospered and succeeded, not just because of diligence and smarts and mutual support, although all that is true, but also of government investments in people who needed it. And I see the Biden efforts, especially with kids and with bandwidth in rural areas like this, as a modern version of the New Deal. Um, boy, I, you know, I think we have a chance now to correct some 
huge mistakes, and I hope it happens. I've talked to Biden about Yamhill, actually, and, uh, you know, it, uh, you know, I think he understands that people in Yamhill are probably not going to vote uh, for A lot of uh, Republican Biden. support this here. This is a very Trumpian area, um, but he also understands, I think, you know, how many people have been left out, how uh, blue-collar workers have had a really bad deal for a long time. And he also talks about the language of dignity, which I think is something that liberals often don't get. And I think that, uh, you know, as a liberal myself, I think we too often think that the remedy for a lost job is an income stream. And, you know, the income stream may be important, but it doesn't replace that loss of self-confidence, that loss of self-esteem when you lose your job. More of my conversation with New York Times columnist Nick Kristoff when we return. We talk about why he thinks Oregon has fallen short on education. We're back in two minutes. Welcome back to our conversation with two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Nicholas Kristoff, a native Oregonian who grew up on a farm in Yamhill. You mentioned broadband, and it makes me think of education when, when you grew up. Broadband, of course, wasn't important, but now it's so important. What effect? Uh, there's not a lot of uh, cell service in parts of, of Yamhill County and our broadband. What effect did that have and does that have on education, especially during the pandemic? I was really sad that um, my fellow liberals on the West Coast were so quick to close in-person schools. And that was not the case in other parts of the country, uh, but on the West Coast, it was. And look, your kids, my kids are going to be fine. Uh, they're going to have internet at home. They're going to have parents, you know, <laughs> making sure they do their work. Here, there are parts of the Amhill School District that don't have cell service and that don't have any uh, local broadband reaching them. What are those kids supposed to do? And they're also, you know, there are an awful lot of families that are struggling. It may be a single parent household where um, that parent is, you know, juggling work. Um, there are one in seven American kids um, is living with a parent who's got a substance abuse problem. There's a certain amount of chaos in that home. And it's, you know, the school can be a lifeline for those kids. Um, nationally, three million kids didn't get any meaningful instruction, remote or in person, during the pandemic. Three million kids essentially just went missing. And um, I, I think as a country, we blew it. And I think my end of the spectrum, the more liberal end, I think, I think we blew it. And I think we blew it here in Oregon. You think Oregon should have kept the schools open? There was a lot of pushback from the teachers' union saying teachers didn't feel safe going back if they weren't vaccinated. A lot of parents didn't feel safe sending their kids, especially families of color. So it was really a, a tough call, wasn't it? You know, th these were issues all across the country. And it turned out, as in uh, Rhode Island, for example, uh, the governor provided real leadership and pushed hard to get uh, those schools open. And uh, that worked. And kids in Rhode Island are better off because that happened there. And I've got to say that the idea that Oregon vaccinated uh, teachers and school staff 
before the elderly, which I can kind of understand as an inducement to get uh, schools open again, but then didn't extract a commitment to resume full in-person schooling, that seems to me a betrayal of Oregon kids. And you know, especially these kids who need it most. Middle-class kids are gonna be just fine. The kids in uh, both urban and rural areas who are struggling, they're the ones for whom that school is a lifeline. And they, they got screwed over in this system. How do you think Oregon in general is doing on education? Oh, Laurel, I just find it so sad to look at the um, NAEP scores, the nationwide scores. Oregon ranks uh, ninth from the bottom in fourth grade math scores. Ninth from the bottom. And if you try to think of a metric for how a state is going to be doing in 25 years, probably fourth grade math scores are as good a metric as any. Um, we have a shorter school year uh, than our neighbors. Uh, by 12th, by by graduation, uh, Oregon kid will have effectively been in school for 12 months, for one year less than kids in neighboring states. And, you know, these are hard problems, and it's easy for a journalist to, to point to the problems. But um, if other states can do better, if Oregon has historically done better, then you know, we can do better. And we're approaching a point where Oregon's problems with schooling are a real burden economically. The companies aren't going to want to invest here if they can't uh, promise their employees uh, top-notch schools. We were able to raise the high school graduation rate in Oregon, and that's, that's a fantastic achievement. Uh, it suggests that we can also make improvements in other aspects of education in Oregon. I just read that the legislature is, uh, may pass a bill that would take away graduation requirements for the class of 22, 23, 24. Good idea to help Terrible those idea. kids graduate? That, bad idea. idea. You, you want to have accountability. You want to have metrics. And the idea that you allow kids to graduate who can't read, who can't do math, uh, that does not strike me as a way to help those kids. Um, it's an abdication of responsibility. And there's another bill winding its way through the legislature that would effectively invest, uh, it would reduce class size, it would use money to reduce class sizes rather than all kinds of other things that be done. And, you know, smaller classes are important. So are mental health services. So was a longer school year. But there are difficult trade-offs there. And the teachers union is very strongly pushing the, the class size issue, I fear that the result is that we're not going to be able to address the short school year, that we're not going to be able to address the needs of disabled kids, the, uh, you know, all kinds of other needs. And uh, again, I just, um, to me, you know, education is the best escalator out of poverty, the best escalator toward a better life for the state. And I think we're screwing up. Well, as we wrap up this episode, do you have a, a message you'd like to leave with Oregonians? This, I mean, this state, you know, one advantage of traveling to Ethiopia, North Korea, Peru, is you, you have a perspective to say that this really is God's country. I mean, Oregon, I think, has so much going for it. Um, I think we'll be much less affected by climate change than a lot of the rest of the country. 
people all over the country, they would like to live in Oregon because of our incredible natural beauty and the way we preserved it. I think there's quite a bit of social capital in Oregon. I think it was one reason why COVID infection rates were lower here than in other places. But I think we have huge challenges and I think we have to confront them, including education. And I don't think we have adequately confronted the challenges we face. Nick Kristoff, thank you for joining us here on Straight Talk. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Next week, we'll have more of my conversation with Nicholas Kristoff. We talked about his column, Lessons for America from a Weird Portland. His thoughts on the city's struggles with homelessness and destructive protests, and how he thinks Portland's leaders can do more. Next week on Straight Talk.